The Antifada is more than a podcast. It's a specter haunting the globe. It is the synthesis of the two most frightening things for the cheerleaders of this reactionary hellworld. One ravaged by the unbounded savagery of capital and its states. Antifa super soldiers and intifada. Bash the bash in a global uprising. Be prepared to enter the Antifada mindset. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm uh, Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are broadcasting, or more like recording, really, uh, from Left is Best headquarters, uh, about like somewhere adjacent to the Guanis fucking. Uh, God, I don't know. You know what? You know what? Fuck it. Like, I, I don't even. This is a fucking bull. Just stop the spiel. Let's go, let's go into the fucking show. <sighs> yeah, All let's right. do it. Let's, uh, I guess we'll just start it and see what happens. Yeah, just go ahead. So, um, damn, we owe our listeners a, a huge apology on this episode. Um, you know, we always try to do good work here on the Antifada and set up, you know, some good guests and have some really great conversation. Um, we did have some great guests lined up today. Uh, they're friends of the show, uh, Adam Proctor and Amy Therese of the Dead Pundit Society. We, fwa, fwa. I mean, great people. Uh, we were going to talk about, um, you know, their big thing, which is socialism for regular ass people on, uh, you know, how they've worked on their pro their podcast, but uh, most importantly, just across social media to really try to, you know, unite the left and and this noxious call out culture. Uh, and if their behavior on Twitter is any indication, it was going to be a really awesome show with uh, two totally normal brained uh, human beings. Yeah, so a series of strange events happened. They kept them from calling in. Um, the lights in the studio were flickering. Um, they still are a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the phone system was acting really strange, which sounds like beeps and boops and static, which is weird because we don't even use the phone system usually. It's really fucked up. It was the strangest thing. Like, they were really freaked out about it, and I don't blame them. Uh, you know, it's just it's mysterious, bizarre events happening uh, to keep us from it. But, you know, this whole episode is pretty much fucked. Um, we're going to, I guess, try to do it anyway. So sorry to the uh, dead pundits. Uh, you know, we love you both and the great work you do. Um, you're really making the left safe again for uh, straight white male workers. And uh, we hope to have you back uh, another time soon. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to dead pundits. So uh, as we have no guests today, I guess we'll do our backup episode, which we've had uh, sitting in our back pocket for a while. Um, so I guess we're going to turn it over to Andy to talk about his Posadas research. Yeah, some of the feedback that we've gotten from our awesome patrons on Discord, you know, we talk about a lot of stuff on there. But one thing they were saying, and I don't take this personally, and neither does Jamie, is they want more AP Andy. So, Andy, go for it. Thank you. Uh, finally. Okay, so some listeners might know that I recently had an article in the outline about Marxist ufology, uh, which I wrote as part of my research into the historical Posadas movement. Um, so while UFOs and aliens were a topic Posadas was interested in, it was a much smaller aspect of his movement than what the neo-Posadist memesters would mm. have you believe. So today, I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to leave the space comrades and the dolphins aside and tell you about historical Posadism. Oof. 
his emergence in the 1940s Argentina, his strategy of an independent class party based in the unions, oh boy. the historic re-encounter of the Bonapartist bureaucracies and the proletarian masses, and the partial re- regeneration of the worker states. Wow, okay. All, all right. right. Let's, let's you ready? Yeah, yeah, let's go. Just, just, like, just, just like dessert to uh, all of our listeners yeah. out there. All right. Just go ahead, Andy. I'm going to talk for about an hour, so that's just fine. settle just, in. Yeah, okay. that's fine. So let's I'm going to turn my mic off anyways. Just, just go ahead. All right. So let's begin in Buenos Aires, 1947. Juan Perón has just consolidated power in the state and the central organ of the workers' movement, the CGT, when a relatively unknown figure named Jay Posadas began the Grupo Cuarta Internacional, arguing for an anti-imperialist united front with the Peronist masses. This position ran him afoul of a young trot, <coughs> sorry, a guy that you might have heard of, named Nahuel Moreno, Ooh. who, <coughs> <coughs> along with other members of the Grupo Obrero Marxista, <coughs> in the studio they're, they're flickering like like fu- like fucking crazy wait a second uh, i recognize this era music it's oh no it's 14 greetings to you friends and comrades this is your comrade communicator principal spokes entity of the intergalactic workers league coming to you live and on tape from the hey you guys have an actual studio here this is nice uh, d- did someone say that you have reefer cake uh, today was my day to tell a history of Orthodox Posadism. Orthodox Posadism, comrade? Or a terrestrialist hit job? Though, of course, the two can easily be one and the same. A subtle turn of emphasis is far more effective than an outright lie. And so is a bourgeois academic gaze that treats Posadism merely as a collection of Posadis' surviving writings frozen in amber rather than as a leaving breathing proletarian movement that must respond to our pre-apocalyptic material conditions. Or else look to the stars and seek the vanguard that stands outside of history. Wow. All right. So I guess we do have a guest after oh, all Oh, wow. Poof, what a turn of events. Holy shit. Wow. Welcome, uh, comrade communicator of the uh, Intergalactic Workers League. I think the mood has improved uh, yeah. substantially. Welcome, the... comrade communicator. Great to see you again. Oh, Andy's big hit. Oh, man. Sorry, Andy. Yeah, maybe next time. Yeah. Wow. So I guess since we have you here, um, we might as well ask you a question that we ask all our guests here at the Antifada. And that is, comrade communicator, how pure is your hate today? Comrades, I have nothing but love. The pure, pure, comradely love that I have absorbed in Comrade High Commander's isolation tank, in his orgone accumulator, from the very stars, from the good intentions of our space comrades. Wow. All uh, right. That is probably the least hate of any guest we've ever had. That's uh, like a first for uh, us. Honestly, I, I, I love it because um, I, I think it's really going to set the tone for now this wonderful new episode we have with the famous comrade communicator. I think it's great. Listen, listen, when you're floating there like there's no sound, there's no light, you're high as balls on ketamine, there is no hate. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe in a glorious future we can all live like that. Sounds good to me. Um, okay, so I guess we should start out with a little bit of news. 
that I think our guests may have an opinion on. Um, do you have that sound, Andy? Space, a final frontier. It may be the final frontier on Star Trek, but in real life, it's the next frontier for the military, with plans now unveiled for the sixth branch of service. The United States Air Force. And the first since the creation of the Air Force in 1947. It is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. The Trump administration wants to build this space force by reorganizing existing programs and personnel, creating an elite group of space war fighters equivalent to the Navy SEALs <laughs> or Green Berets, and asking Congress for $8 billion over the next five years, all part of a push to combat aggressive moves by Russia and China. President Trump today tweeting Space Force all the way with his campaign, asking supporters to pick their favorite logo offering up six options. Space Force. The Space Force. Space Force. People love them. But retired astronaut Mark Kelly does not love it. It's unnecessary bureaucracy right, and unnecessary cost because currently the, the Air Force is, the U.S. Air Force is dealing with this threat adequately. The Space Force needs approval by Congress. Only then can the president complete his mission to boldly go where the military hasn't had a branch before. Hallie Jackson, NBC News, Washington. Wow. So uh, what's your take on this whole Space Force thing, Comrade Communicator? Do you think that they uh, maybe got wise to the existence of space comrades and they want to just shoot them before they bring full communism to Earth or what? Actually, uh, Kelly has a point. They've been, uh, they, the Air Force has been on that since at least the 40s. Uh, uh, Comrade High Commander says that uh, the Space Force thing is probably misdirection. Consider uh, $8 billion of funding uh, to start a new branch of the military, doubtlessly uh, headed by hand-picked Trump loyalists. Now, we, what we actually don't know, uh, because we, we, we can't trust anything that comes uh, out of Washington, we don't know if, if they're ever going to go beyond the Earth's atmosphere, these uh, space warriors. What we do know is that this is going to be a new branch of the military, uh, well-funded, uh, and uh, led by hand-picked Trump loyalists. Now, what does that sound like to you? Mm. The Air Force has already been doing all that stuff for years. Uh, the men in black, uh, honestly, the FBI and the CIA handled some of it in cooperation with the old KGB and the FSB right now, uh, strangely enough. Uh, so what, what a, lot of, a lot of people are saying, in fact, what a lot of internet posadists are saying, uh, that this is, this is some new, uh, it, is, it might be a new effort to, to militarize space uh, above board. Uh, um, but uh, certainly, certainly the Air Force has been uh, handling that uh, enemy alien kind of uh, official state Ikean program uh, of, of trying, to, uh, trying to prevent uh, a, a space comrade content, contact. So do you think this is really just making uh, uh, public what has always been the, the case for the last 60, 70 years? No, I think it's a prelude to a coup. Fair enough. A space coup or just a regular Earth coup? the most mundane terrestrialist coup imaginable, or at the very least, uh, a jockeying for power. Uh, whether this is true or not, uh, Donald Trump is, is terrified that uh, the kind of uh, established uh, elites within the uh, institutions of the state uh, can't be uh, trusted uh, to implement his program. I think this is nonsense. The man's paranoid. 
Uh, but uh, he, he, he seems he's building a new branch of the military. That's the real story, and one that we don't see the terrestrial uh, press reporting, uh, nor have we seen anyone on the terrestrialist left talk about this, oddly enough, that this is a new branch of the military, that Trump is going to pick who is in charge of it. Uh, they are going to be loyal to him. They're going to be, you know, decked out like space marines, but they're going to spend most of their time on Earth. Think about it, friends. But we get to pick the logo, so that makes it good, right? That's a good point. Andy, did you have some thoughts on this? I think what um, it, it really signifies the the direction that the U.S. government is going now in, in regards to uh, its former, you know, NASA glory from the 60s and 70s that inspired so many people. Um, and, and part of that was that the, the, the space race was part of the arms race. And in 1967, there was something of an amelioration of, of the, the horror of the idea of, like, war in space, nuclear weapons in space, um, with the, the signing between the United States, England, and Moscow of the... Uh, of the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. And so this was basically prohibiting the militarization of space, and um, just like the United States has done with many international treaties, they're just crumbling it up and throwing it away. Yeah, but that was before Russia launched an all-out attack on our democracy. So, like, as far as I'm concerned, all bets are off, mm. which is a thing that Trump totally cares about. I uh, I think this isn't the first time that um, U.S. government forces. I'm not sure what comrade communicators take on the concept of the deep state is, but uh, I'm not sure this is the first time. I believe Ronald Reagan uh, got the name of the show. <laughs> Ronald Reagan because of his uh, attempt to create something somewhat similar uh, back in the 1980s. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. See, this this uh, is also an insight. Uh, into the uh, the particular science fiction fandoms of our presidents, uh, where Reagan was into Star Wars, uh, Donald Trump is apparently a big Heinlein fan. Uh, <laughs> Starship Troopers, uh, yeah. most certainly. Oh yeah, I mean his description, the description of just like all these like fucking beefy military guys with guns in space is just like pure Starship Troopers all the way, which means you know everything's gonna be fine and no one's gonna get eaten by bugs. Uh, here's another clip from the Reagan era uh, Space Force, uh, which he just called Star Wars, which is even less creative <laughs> than Space Force. Here, an artist's projection of the president's vision. Banning into space, a layered defense to protect the country from nuclear devastation. U.S. spy satellites would watch the world below, detect Soviet missiles blasting off, Compute the position and speed of each missile. Alert battle stations in space on Earth. The first response. Space-based kinetic energy weapons fire high-speed projectiles from hypervelocity guns. So ominous. Intercepting enemy missiles as they are boosted through the atmosphere. Popped up into space. Earth-based nuclear-powered X-ray lasers fire their radioactive rays. Yeah, we're gonna have to put a link to this in the show notes because it's got really great '80s animation of like Atari-style uh, <laughs> satellite nice. shooting lasers at missiles labeled CCCP. It's glorious. That's uh, that's some peak Cold War shit right there. Evil Empire and Atari. 
Uh, anyone old enough to remember that? Is, uh, Reagan should have just man. built a Death Star. Or Trump should build a Death Star. Don't give the, the man any more ideas, man. I would not put it past him. If we build the Death Star, we know, you know it's not going to last for too long. Oh, but yeah. because of that Despair. one vent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe if they build the, uh, the Death Star again, they won't put that one vent in. <laughs> they'll leave that out of the drawers. Barack Obama wanted to build a vent in the Death Star. How stupid <laughs> are stupid we? Are How we? stupid are we? <laughs> I've heard some people say that um, maybe this, I mean, self-included, full disclosure, that maybe this whole Space Force thing is just a way for them, like, say, I don't know, Mad Dog Mattis or whoever to distract Trump so that they can go about, uh, you know, imposing austerity and winning the Monopoly oh. game in peace without his disruptive uh, Twitter interjections. Like, oh. do you think there's any truth to that? Like, oh, here's, yeah, here's a Space Force program. It's great. Go play with your Legos. It's like jangling, and, uh, some, ki jangling some keys. Yeah, it'll keep him busy for a real long time, probably. It won't keep him off of Twitter. Nothing will keep that man off of Twitter. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, unless 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 the space marines will be like hiding his phone twenty four seven, I don't think that's gonna work. Or maybe he'll just be tweeting about space force and not like I don't know directly contradicting something that one of his diplomats just said. Ooh, maybe we could take uh, if if we're gonna recruit a space force, perhaps uh, we can get all those ice guys at least off of the terrestrial plane and send them off into space with or without spacesuits or rockets. Yeah. It's going to give illegal aliens a whole new meaning. That's right. I, 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 don't, I don't feel that that would be fair to, uh, to the space comrades. Uh. See, this is what kind of bothers me about the whole IWLP shtick is hey, we're talking shtick. about something pretty serious here. You know, we're talking about creating a new branch of the military and we have, you know, Comrade Communicator, uh, as entertaining as he is, talking about aliens and stuff and... Uh, it just turns this whole horror show into kind of like a, a joke. Well, uh, I, 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 I am uh, very uh, disappointed that uh, you see our work that way, Andy. And if we're going to go there, I must say that while I in, have enjoyed from time to time some of the uh, new insights that you've uh, provided into uh, some of, uh, you know, the, 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 the more kind of like minor mundane aspect of Posadas' work. Shots fired. Um, you're, 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 missing, you're missing the main thing that makes Posadas relevant uh, right now. Now, there's currently far more interest, and there always has been, in Posadas' ideas uh, about uh, the general prospects of a post-apocalyptic revolution, a dolphin communication. I can see Andy rolling his eyes right now. Give me a break with the dolphin. He wrote, like, one thing about dolphins, but, and yo, this yo, is all the memes. Comrade communicator, please stay in your seat. There's no reason to get up and move towards Andy. Everything's <laughs> going to be fine, okay? Guys, both of you guys just cool it down, all right? Listen, if you guys are going to bicker about the difference between historical Posadism and neo-Posadism, uh, I think that the best thing we could do is just have Jamie and I moderate, you know, a decent discussion, you know, yeah. a discussion of equals, a free exchange of ideas. We will turn this podcast around, okay? <laughs> now, let's settle this once and well, for all. Well, all right. Here, well, I, have to, I, have to, I have to address something that was just said. Well, first of all, this, well, is, this is a very, very common uh, thing. To, to say historical Posadism and neo-Posadism, they are in fact there are in fact three distinct branches of Posadist thought. There is orthodox Posadism, which largely doesn't exist anymore, and Andy is attempting to reconstruct, which is 
a very noble effort. Uh, oh, well, you should have seen his eyes. His eyes roll when he said "noble effort." But go on. It is. It is. I, uh, we we think we think that 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 that, that history is 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 important. Uh, uh, but you know, it's a matter of emphasis, though. Now, 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 comrades, there is also internet pesadism, which we all know. We all see. It's these memes that uh, don't really develop pesadus. Very often, revised pesadus uh, don't really respond to material conditions. They're just ha ha dolphins. I talk about this. I don't like this either. But what you guys tend to glom in with this is the third branch of pesadism, which is Comrade High Commander's pesadism of the 21st century. This is a line of thinking that adapts to material conditions, that looks at the relevance of Posadas' greatest ideas for our day, synthesizes uh, Posadas with uh, other Marxist thinkers, such as Reich, uh, sometimes even thinkers outside the Marxist tradition, such as Peter Kropotkin and Ted Kaczynski. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, and and we, we need to, uh, and w- yeah, th- this, this, this is a distinction we must make. There are three schools of Posadism, and what Andy is, and, and they're all historical, mind you, uh, internet pesadism, uh, what we call internet pesadism, has a history dating back to at least the 90s. Actually, some of those jokes date back to uh, the, the contemporary uh, period uh, where, where Posadas wrote and spoke still. Uh, but they became, well, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting the uh, wrap-up hand from, I won't say who, <laughs> because I'm not rude. Uh, okay, I have, I'm wrapping up. <laughs> wow. Um, so maybe... If- if I may uh, act as sort of the interlocutor between these two uh, branches or interpretations of Posadism, um, maybe we'll go back and forth and give uh, both of you guys a chance to respond to different questions. It'll so it'll be like counterfire, or what's it called? Crossballs. Crossballs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you you be Tucker Carlson. I'll be the other asshole. Okay. So Andy. I know you really wanted to talk about the historical origins of Posadas um, as a. Re- having roots in like a Trotskyist split, um, something to do with South America. Like, can, can you tell me a little bit about that? Okay, sure. So and no interruptions, please, from uh, our guest comrade communicator. Yes. I certainly won't. I'll be a good boy. Thank so uh, before he was Jay Posadas, he was Homero Romulo Fresnelli Cristalli. He was born in 1911 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, to two Italian immigrant parents, um, and like many of the immigrants to Argentina at the time, um, which had like a the second largest immigration wave after the United States, they were anarchists. They were anarcho-syndicalists in the Fora Union, which was a union that was openly uh, anarcho-communist. And this was actually the center of the workers' movement in Argentina from about 1900 to, uh, to actually 1917, when the, the Bolshevik Revolution kind of introduces communism and a lot of anarchists move to communists to, to become anarcho-Bolsheviks, actually. Um, at the same time, there was these waves of really serious repression against the anarchists. Uh, so the movement kind of moved towards socialism and communism. And so when Posadas is coming of age in the 20s, he's actually a, a professional soccer player. And Argentina is also going through this institutional shift um, where the unions are becoming centralized in the CGT, People are drifting towards more mainstream political parties, and the anarchist uh, revolutionary pretensions are sort of disappearing. Mm. So, in the 19, uh, early 1940s, there's a coup. Uh, there's you know many coups in the history of Argentina, 
but this one was a coup from the military of, of generals who were sympathetic towards the fascists in uh, World War II, the Axis powers, or at least thought that they were going to come to power. And among them was a general named Juan Domingo Perón. Oh, Madonna's husband, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And he understood that the previous coups, the right-wing coups, had no popular support. So he uh, appointed himself the head of labor, and he began to make these very generous deals with the unions. And he got uh, these socialist union leaders on his, on his side, basically. Uh, but more so, he got the working class on his side. So as the Trotskyist Fourth International is forming, uh, and maybe we'll talk a little about the history of the Trotskyist Fourth International as well, the, the socialists are mostly against Perón while the working class is in favor of him. Mm. So most of the socialists consider Perón to be a fascist. And Cristali, who was around this time developing the name uh, or using the nom de guerre Posadas, uh, actually uh, distinguished himself by saying that Perón is not a fascist. He is a Bonapartist, uh, which is sort of a Trotskyist terminology for uh, like a progressive nationalist military leader. And he is going to actually develop the working class and its anti-imperialist sentiments and that socialists ought to form a anti-imperialist popular front with Perón. And this position eventually won him uh, recognition of the Fourth International and his Grupo Cuatro Internacional in 1951 is recognized as the section of the Fourth International in Argentina. What you're saying is he was basically like the Lula of his time, no? Well, Lula is like a open socialist or communist or something. So it's a little bit different because Perón didn't have any... He was like a third-way figure. He was more like Mm. de Gaulle. Mm. That was a uh, big trend back then. Now that Andy's given us that great, um, you know, introduction to historical uh, Posadism, uh, Comrade Communicator, do you want to give us a, uh, you know, a sort of history of the origins of Neo-Posadism and also kind of tell us a bit about how Comrade High Commander, uh, you know, synthesized a lot of these ideas into a new theoretical apparatus? Well, I, I, to, to begin with, if, if I may, and if I may, you could say I may not. I'd, I'd like you to. May. I, I, yes, thank you. I, I'd like to say uh, a, a few words uh, about the, again, the question of focus. Now, as I was saying before, there is a reason uh, why all of this stuff about the unions, about Peronism, uh, the form worker states. Uh, in, in the post uh, period of, of the history when Posadas was working on these things, no one has really uh, cared much about it. It doesn't speak to our times. What speaks to our times are the prospects of post-apocalyptic revolution because we live in pre-apocalyptic times. And the prospect of uh, intervention from the space comrades because that seems to be the only other option other than trying to build socialism on the ashes, which is frankly terrifying. Uh, Posadas also wrote about the ge- degenerated worker states, but those have degenerated to the point of collapse over a quarter century ago. That's fair, yeah. You know, while at the same time, the U.S. and Russian Federation still have their nuclear arsenals aimed at one another. Uh, and the capitalist elites are, as we speak, twiddling their thumbs while uh, their wealth concentration scheme is uh, quickly destroying our planet's ability to sustain life. How relevant is the trade union movement for the revolutionary prospects of the day? Uh, Only to the point where they can develop before the ecology collapses, which, you know, we don't have much, you know, yeah, I, I think I think he's wrong. And you, the listener who is interested in the UFOs and uh, the post-apocalyptic uh, creation of socialism, the prospects for it, you are right. Uh, the question was about 
neo-Pasadism and the, the origins of your party. Friends, uh, well, okay, okay. Guys, 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 all right, listen, calm down, settle down. Everything's going to be all right. I know this is a very tense time for both of you, but we can do this, all right? Go ahead and speak on it. It is my pleasure always to speak of Comrade High Commander. Comrade High Commander was born in, well, I can't tell you which Soviet Republic and exactly when. He, he uh, is never very specific about it, but he looks, he looks fairly middle-aged to maybe. Yeah, he's like in, between his 50s and his 70s. Uh, I know that in the 1970s, he uh, was in Moscow. He was a, uh, at one point a student at the State University, and uh, he was in a number of esoteric circles as well as uh, some underground, believe it or not, Trotskyist circles. Uh, he encountered a Samizdat version of Posadas's uh, famous uh, saucer essay uh, and a number of his other works, a number of his uh, transhumanist works, particularly relating to childbearing and uh, and, uh, and 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 child raising uh, and and uh, children uh, in space and all of that. Uh, oh yeah, I was gonna ask, like, what's the deal with the water birth stuff? I've read a little bit about that in Posadism. Is oh. it like the the floating baby head in two thousand one, a space odyssey? Is it like that? <laughs> I don't, it might it might be related, but it it has everything to do with uh, the experiments conducted by uh, Professor Igor Cherkovsky, uh, who was also a big dolphin communication guy in the <sighs> Soviet Union. Oh, that's big. Uh, and in fact, uh, his method of water birth involves dolphins. Uh, Posadas was very into various advances uh, made in in the sciences, especially uh, in the Soviet Union. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about dolphins, too, because uh, I see, I mean, maybe this is more like internet posadism, but I see dolphins are like a big uh, motif, a big element, and uh, even they've made their way into our own logo. So like, yeah, let's let's stop being posers and really get into that. Yeah, I, I think we definitely need to get into this dolphin uh, conundrum, and we definitely need to start, talk about uh, space comrades. But Andy, do you want to kind of tie these two things together, right? Like, so where did Posadism go after the 1960s uh, with this thinker down there in Argentina? Yeah, how did it become its own political tendency? And... Um, like it actually active parties in the world. Like as I understand it, there's still an active Posadist party in Uruguay, right? Yeah, I actually met with uh, Raúl Campanesha, the uh, the leader of that party, the Partido Obrero Revolucionario oh, Anarchista, nice. who's part of the Frente Amplio. Revisionists. Um, <laughs> calm down. He calm was not down. aware of the IWLP. He was not in contact with them. Well, we're aware of his grouping. Okay. So uh, <laughs> when last I left off, uh, Posadas had uh, had his section recognized by the Fourth International. And in 1952, the Fourth International had its for first split, um, divided between the uh, Michel Pablo's International Secretary of the Fourth International and uh, the uh, the uh, UC of the Fourth International, which is mostly the United States, SWP, and uh, certain British and, and French sections. So Posadas was with the majority split. And he was put in charge of the Latin American Bureau, which coordinated all of the groups in uh, Latin America. Oh, that's, some, a, that's a big yeah. area to be the chief of. He was the leader of the majority of Trotskyist groups in, in Latin America. Wow. How many um, do you think, uh, how many members do you think they had? I, I don't know how many members. Uh, it wasn't, you know, millions, but it was a large percentage of the Trotskyists in the world because Bolivia had uh, one of the largest Trotskyist movements, if not the largest at that time. Argentina and Uruguay also had a lot of Trotskyists. Uh, Brazil and Mexico, and in most importantly, perhaps, in Cuba, uh, the only mm. Trotskyist group was organized by Posadas' BLA. So uh, 
around the end of the 50s, there was, you know, more trouble in the IS of the Fourth International. There's always, you know, Trotskyists are always splitting. And um, That's why we got 57 flavors. It was exasperated by the arrest of Michel Pablo in uh, 1960 um, for forge, uh, forging money and uh, manufacturing arms for the Algerian FLN. Nice. Uh, yeah, so, I have no objections which, to that. Uh, can you explain what that was for our listeners who it was might a, not know? anti-colonial struggle against the French government in Algeria. Mm. Um, Battle of Algiers, folks. Good yep. film if you ever get a chance. Those to weapons were made by Posadists. Oh, no shit. Wow. wow. Long live Posadists. <laughs> and they were terrestrial weapons. They weren't laser exactly. beams. This was, yeah, this was before the Space Comrade talk. Um, mm. But uh, so in 1960, uh, with his uh, Michel Pablo arrested, Posadists goes to the World Congress of the International and says, okay, you guys are uh, third worldists. You believe that the revolution is not going to happen in Europe, but in, in Algeria and South America. There was just this revolution in Cuba, and those people are, uh, I'm organizing them. So realistically, the Fourth International should move to South America, and I should be the new secretary of it. And he was never taken seriously as a thinker. Um, he was a v very charismatic organizer, um, a very good coordinator of these sections, and mostly very obedient to Michel Pablo. But now with Pablo out of the picture, Pierre Frank, Libio Maitan, um, and Ernst Mandel maneuver to kind of sideline Posadas and keep control of the Fourth International in Europe. And Posadas, uh, the next year, has an extraordinary Congress of the Fourth International in Montevideo, Uruguay. And he claims that this is the World Congress of the Fourth International, but he did not invite the European sections. Ooh, sick burn. And he uh, dissolves those sections, proclaims the Fourth International under the, con the control of the Latin American Bureau, and says that he this is now the Fourth International. Hmm. Damn, power um, move there. So throughout the 60s, he does control, uh, or in the early 60s, he does control a very large Trotskyist movement, the majority of Trotskyists in South America. But quickly, these groups start to splinter because he does a lot of weird things. So you say that uh, Posad didn't get, Posadists didn't get into uh, the UFO shit until later, right? Um, maybe like post the, the 60s period that you're talking about. Um, I know like a very influential text that he wrote where he's talking about aliens was from 1968. Um, so I've heard a narrative floated by some people that Posadis was tortured and as a result kind of lost his mind in the late 60s. And that's when he started talking about the aliens and the dolphins and whatnot. Um, does Comrade Communicator have an opinion on that? Oh, a very strong opinion, friends and comrades. You know, this is, this is not unique to Posadis. Whenever uh, someone uh, has uh, a kind of groundbreaking opinion that terrifies people, uh, they, they try to find, they try to find some, like, extremely ableist way mm. to discredit it. And, and this is an example of this. Honestly, um, I, I think, I think that people should, and, and I think, I think that people try to say that Posadas went crazy and, and, and he can't be trusted after he was tortured. A lot of comrades were tortured. That's and, true. and we only, we only tend to say this about the, you know, the ones whose ideas we disagree with. So, uh, as far as I can tell, Posadas was never tortured. There's a lot of rumors about him. Um, I've read many uh, hundreds of pages written by Posadas and about his life. He's never said anything about him being tortured. He was only, as far as I know, arrested a couple of times and not tortured during those arrests. Um, 
he uh, the, the alien stuff comes from a lieutenant in his party named Dante Minizzoli, who I write about in my uh, Marxist ufology piece for the outline, um, who was just always interested in UFOs. He says uh, in an interview that in 1947, he heard about uh, the Roswell incident and the flying saucers in the Argentine press, and he said, those are aliens. Aliens are visiting. And all of his comrades said, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but he always, uh, as he rose through the ranks of this Posadas International, he kept telling Posadas about this, and eventually Posadas said something about it in 1968, but that's the only time. And Posadas was a believer in, in UFOs and, and aliens, and he did believe what he said in that essay, but it wasn't a big issue for him. Um, and uh, Posadas may have been insane. Um, he definitely had some a lot of delusions of grandeur, and uh, he kicked some people out of his party um, in, in 74, believing that they were like all sleeping with his wife, <laughs> uh, which was probably not true. Cocknation.org. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's the result of any torture. He was just always a really weird guy. The fourth international of cockery. So, so consider this. Consider this. Uh, this would mean, and you know, it's it's. An, I, I'm I'm a I'm an agnostic on the torture question. To be honest, I don't think it's relevant. It's only relevant in this that it's entirely possible if what Andy says is correct that uh, people decided he was tortured after he wrote things that were honestly too friggin' big for him. Yeah, that's know? exactly right. Mm-hmm. All right, so so we have some points of agreement. That's good. Yeah, you guys are uh, finally kind of coming together. That's great. Um, <clears throat> also, I? by the way, I must say that Andy is also engaging in this in this like in this subtle uh, character assassination. You know, a lot of great men were eccentric, and uh, I uh, that's all I have to say that's about true. that. Lots I of great women, lots of great people who are neither men nor women are very eccentric. Speaking of uh, <laughs> folks who are neither uh, men nor women, we are about to touch on this before. Let's go back to it. Uh, what is the deal with the dolphins? Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners are especially interested in the uh, dolphin aspect of it, considering it's like a very evocative image. And like, we really like to think about dolphins in relationship to like the galaxy brain, you know, uplifting other species. Like they're so fucking smart and they're just like in the ocean thinking thoughts and we don't even know like what they're doing and down they, there. they talk to each other they have like some sort of like uh i don't know whole like social system they got down there and uh they're really really smart oh so, yes oh yes um so the the dolphin thing was not something posadas wrote about a lot i can only find one published article about it uh but from his internal bulletins it seems like he saw um the the charkovsky experiments with water birth as an indication that um, humans were being uh, beginning to, to communicate with animals. And he really believed in unity with the cosmos, so, you know, traveling in space, exploring space, and meeting aliens, and unity with nature. So he believed that uh, basically the, this messianic image of um, the lion lying down with the lamb, uh, he thought that anim- humans and animals could live in peace. And uh, so I think he saw this connection with dolphins, especially with uh, water birthing, because he was also obsessed with children. He wanted children to be equal in the party and, in fact, promoted his young daughter to lead the Brazilian section, which is one of the moves that really pissed off a lot of people in the party. How old was she at that point in time? Seven. I'm not totally sure. I think in her early 20s, but he removed like a very skilled capable leader to put all right uh, i'm picturing like a seven-year-old in charge of the party which is funny to me 
I, I don't know her, her age at the time, but she was young. Some sects act, act as though they have seven-year-olds running them. But anyways, uh, I think what you, you said is really interesting because the, this idea of attachment to the cosmos and also attachment to nature is was very ahead of its time. And I think it's something that we as you know socialists, communists, anarchists, whatever, also feel. And I think, comrade communicator, that sort of jives with what you were saying, uh, the kind of... I don't know, the wacky aspects of what Posadas was talking about at that time tend to get accentuated when really he had these big ideas that it's easier to car easy to caricature, but, you know, actually kind of uh, make a lot of sense. Is that? Well, I mean, the thing is, is, is what you would call the wacky ideas are the big ideas. Right. Uh, right. I think I think and honestly, I think Andy Andy is right on here uh, about Point of agreement about. But but I, I don't think he goes far enough. I think the we the strength of his method is that he really goes into the surviving sources, the the uh, what's written down. But he does not have access to telepathic projection. Uh, yeah. uh, he does not. And, and he doesn't really put two and two together. Like, consider this. Uh, even if you look at the text, uh, in uh, the famous saucer essay that uh, everyone uh, listening has certainly read, or can look up on Marxist.org. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to it in uh, the blog post. We made sure they read Andy's article as homework for this episode, mm -hmm. so yes. Uh, he, he, talks about, he talks about briefly about in the future perhaps people reproducing like amoebas, and we have to connect this to both his thoughts uh, about the importance of children, particularly his... Uh, attention to childbirth, uh, to different kinds of childbirth, and frankly, to childbirth producing a new person, that socialist project, that Soviet project of producing a new person. But in this case, not simply through socialization, but biologically. It's a transhumanist project. Uh, water birth, uh, and, you know, this, this thing with people are reproducing like amoebas, that's straight out of the work of Konstantin Solkovsky, who is the father of Russian rocketry, uh, the father of Russian cosmism, uh, and a forerunner of transhumanist ideas. Posadas was a transhumanist, and the dolphin thing is part of it, but it's also part of contact with the space comrades. We must consider, uh, he might not have many writings about it, uh, but this is this is this was something that was running through his head, as as Andy said it. He was a believer. In fact, though Andy doesn't know this because he does not have access to uh, astral projection. Ah, uh, the poverty of empiricism. <laughs> Indeed, um, Posadas had had contacts himself. Um, Comrade High Commander has informed me of this after having projected himself in time and space, uh, and. This was not a fruitful contact. Most of our contacts are not very fruitful because we lack the ability to communicate. And Posadas figured, and he was very much correct, that the first step is to establish uh, a rapport with uh, the other intelligences on Earth. And then we might be ready to communicate with the space comrades. And the space comrades might be watching us doing this, and they might see, well, the, these, these, they're, they, they might now be ready for us because they have established a rapport and respect for the intelligences that have evolved side by side with them. Now, it's very interesting because um, I do think that there is something reflexive about um, social development and also theories and, and culture. And one of my favorite movies as a kid was the uh, Star Trek. Splash. <laughs> that was the best Star Trek. Star where Trek the Splash. Star Trek, where they go back. It was the prequel to Gung Ho. 
correct? <laughs> was it? I, I, I had no idea. There was the Star Trek, remember the one where they go back in time because they have to get the whales because whales are the only beings capable of communicating with space comrades, let's call them. Uh, so they have to go get a whale from the past and then go into the future with the whale. Otherwise, this giant alien weapon is going to destroy the Earth. So in a sense, right, that is a, a, a pale reflection, but a, uh, I think a, a real reflection of sort of this maybe more cosmic collective sense that human beings need to start integrating our communicative abilities with other creatures. It just expresses itself in this cultural sort of production. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And and lest we forget, this is something Posadas, we have no evidence that he was into this, but it'd be weird if he wasn't. The aquatic ape theory of Ooh. human origin. Are you guys familiar with this? No, no. do tell. It's, it's the idea most famously promoted by uh, writer Elaine Morgan in the 70s until her death in 2013 that uh, human beings are descended from aquatic apes. This was seen as pseudoscience for a while, but uh, figures as uh, eminent as uh, Sarah Ettenborough, uh, the, uh, the, the great British naturalist whose uh, shows we all watched as babies, uh, is, is, now, is now giving this a second thought because the Serengeti hypothesis has been so thoroughly disproven. Sounds now, like something Joe Rogan would be into. Oh well, you know, uh, I'll I'll go on his show after I'm done here if 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 he'll let me on and I'll speak about it. I think he's got the studio after us, so that might yeah. work out. Yeah, oh. we, we can work that out for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thank yeah. you, thank you. This is making connections left and right. Yeah. Hell yeah. We kicked Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro out last week, but <laughs> Rogan's still good with us. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's good. It's good. It's good to maintain those connections. It's good to maintain those connections. So if I may, just harp on the dolphins for one more second. Uh, the uh, dolphins. And the <laughs> sorry, Andy. Yes, the Miami Dolphins. And the, uh, all love the team. as as well as the uh, the vision of reproduction. Um, I feel like Posadas uh, had this almost. Uh, he, he, I, it's hard to say if he really idealized this post-sex uh, state of affairs, but he seems to a little bit. Um, if I could quote from his essay, he says there is no reason, for example. He's talking about how different the aliens are from humans. There's no reason, for example, that reproduction must always take place by means of couples. There may also be self-reproduction, as is the case for the amoeba. Why could this not also be the case for humans in the future? And I want to I want to kind of link this up to where he also talks about um, how nonviolent and how pleasant the aliens are. Um, it sounds like he sees sex as almost like sort of this vulgar, gross, violent thing. And it could be you know, partially uh, as a way, as a means of uh, abolishing or solving the problem of reproductive labor, right? Social reproduction, this, uh, this, this issue that we have not been able to solve yet because it is literally labor to just keep the human race going. But also like, in that sense, I wonder if he might be idealizing the dolphins a little bit because as most of us know, they do have a dark side and have even been known to rape when uh, feeling more aggressive. Like, I, I, I think I've heard them referred to as the rapists of the sea yep. in some circumstances. Like, uh, I don't know. What they're do you, not, not the happy little animals you see on the tuna fish can, no. I yeah, like, what do you think about all that? Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a historical answer uh, that uh, Posadas from a Co very early age. Comrade communicator, please, please, oh. please calm down, okay? Let him finish. Uh, one, one at a time. Uh, from a very early age, Posadas was against sex. He thought sex was disgusting. Uh, I found a text that he wrote, I, I think in 1940, where he decried this uh, popular slogan amongst the youth movement of uh, free love. 
as he began to lead his own movement, uh, he was very strict about revolutionary morality. Mm. Um, and he demanded that any marriages, uh, first of all, no sex between comrades. If comrades want to get married, it has to be approved by the party. Ugh. If they want to have children, it has to be approved by the party. Damn. And he himself seemed to have sex kind of like a Vulcan once every seven years. <laughs> uh, like a cicada, like he, arising from his shell. He went shell. to yeah. Decemmering like the folks in the left-handed darkness. Uh, yeah. Um, but even... Only way less often. Yeah, even less... Like, yeah. So he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways in that he's kind of like OG incel. Valsel. Or Valsel. Valsel. He's Valsel. He could have fucked, but he found it repulsive. And not only that, but he believed that in socialism, there would be no more sex, like you mentioned. Oh, God. But also in other texts, he said, there'd be no more food and eating. We would no longer need to eat. Um, there'd be no more humor, uh, which oh, maybe if we have some Damn. extra time, we can have a bonus episode where we read his essay uh, about jokes and irony, where he says that this is a product of class struggle. Are you proposing perhaps a real Posadas hours? Yeah, we should get real. All right, um, we can do that. This isn't real yet. So, ah, nonsense. I'm starting to see why there are so few posadists in the world. That's right. <laughs> no they, fucking. They do not reproduce. No it's basically so all. <laughs> they all died out. <laughs> like Quakers. Well, he had oh, a shakers, daughter. Shakers, thank you. In uh, 1974, and he believed that his daughter would would carry on his international, and so he educated her to be the next leader of the Posadas International, and unfortunately, it seemed she had no interest in that. So now the international is led by his son. Mm. Um, who uh, seems to be somewhat capable at, at leading the international. He's uh, has connections with uh, the Maduro government and um, and with the the Russian embassy uh, in Argentina. But uh, it is it is certainly not the grand international that Posadas envisioned. As a Valsel, does his son post on 8chan, Do you think? He's very old. I I really doubt it. <laughs> yeah, you, you never, never know. know. So, so on the same topic of uh, Poseidon maybe having a bit of a rosy view of certain beings that we may or may not be making contact with, um, there's another quote from his essay that I'd like to highlight. And he's talking, of course, about the space comrades. And he says, they have shown no interest in attacking, violating, stealing, possessing. They have come to observe. And that just makes me wonder, like, tell that to all the people who got probed, you know? Like, that's more than a violation. That's like a fucking space felony. To, to begin with, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to say, if I may, say something about the dolphins. Uh, I don't... We consider when all of these observations of, 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 of this behavior of gangs of, of young male dolphins uh, engaging in this horrendous behavior where this comes from. Uh, this uh, Urban dolphin types? No, no, this is all... This is all roving the, urban dolphin gangs. No, roving biker gangs without the bikes, fundamentally. Right, right. Mm. Uh, Just flippers. Yes, more or less. This is these. Uh, this this is this was all of these observations. We hardly studied dolphins uh, before the sonar age, and as anyone knows, uh, what the sonar age did to world dolphin civilization, as well as that of the whales, is is completely annihilated. Uh, long 
long-range communication between pods of dolphins became impossible, where before you had this vibrant global culture of, of, of dolphins just sharing things and, and, and sharing information, and basically they had an internet. They had a live biological internet. Suddenly everything's disrupted. Uh, the dolphins themselves call this the great confusion. Uh, I know this because Comrade High Commander is in communion with the Commodore. He calls her the Commodore. Oh, interesting. Uh, she is the matriarch of uh, a pod local to Coney Island, Brighton Beach. Uh, oh, wow. And he was able to communicate with her because she had been a part of a Soviet military program, which she escaped from, and she speaks excellent Russian. Uh, and when you say local, you mean local union, right? I'm assuming they're unionized, the pods? Uh, they're, uh, they're, you know, they, they, I, I guess the, those concepts, the, the concept of labor is not one that dolphins have developed that's why they're ah, better than us um but no but but this these are the roving biker gangs of apocalyptic conditions this is not we shouldn't naturalize this this is social mm. we're seeing that's social the, collapse this is mad max dolphin style functionally so, yes so, so you're saying that uh this capitalist world we live in has sort of dissolved the bonds of dolphin society and led to a state of disarray in which these uh so-called crimes are happening. Yes, and the, the, the kind of like uh, neoliberal uh, academy, uh, uh, the neoliberal imperial academy, when studying the dolphins, naturalizes the very behavior that's caused by the very collapse that's caused by our civilization. Does that sound familiar to you? Is this unusual? It does. Friends and comrades, we differ with uh, the orthodox posadists on the sex question. The crux of our difference is that we do not seek to take sex out of the equation, but merely to separate it from reproduction. Open your mind's eye, friends and comrades. Imagine yourself in the future. Your body is not as it is now. You sculpt and re-sculpt your body at will with the advanced technologies, nanotechnologies, biotechnologies brought to us by the space comrades. Between whatever the analog of your legs may be, do not have what you have now. You have a super genital. A super genital is a wonderful thing. It is a source of infinite pleasure, knowledge, and poetry. It can piss poetry, and it can come music. Friends, the super genital. A gift to us from the space comrades. Wow, sign me up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's happening. I mean, I'd definitely rather have that than a vagina. Like, Jesus Christ, what is that thing even? You know, they're always breaking down, causing problems. To be it's, honest, I, I've had enough. I wouldn't mind one, but I'd also like to still have a penis. That's always been my view on it. I want everything. And that is what the Space Comrades will bring us everything and more. Yeah, someone should tell Sheryl uh, Sandberg that that is the real definition of having it all. So back to historical Posadism, Andy, earlier you mentioned that there was a large Trotskyist movement in Cuba and that they were mostly Posadists. Um, I read something on the Internet that they were actually part of, I don't know, some potential nuclear catastrophe. There's something about Guantanamo Bay. I, I don't know. Tell, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, so... Um like I said earlier, this was the only Trotskyist group in Cuba, and uh, as such, they were, um, you know, violently at odds with the Communist Party of Cuba, which was jockeying for position. You're talking within. Castro and Che. Well, Castro and Che were not part of the Communist Party. Okay. Uh, 
Castro was at initially agnostic about uh, communism and Marxism. He was more of a national liberation type guy. Che was more interested in Marxism. So there was this internal power struggle um, that involved the Sino-Soviet split between the Soviet Union and China, and that also the Trotskyists had a hand in via Posadas. Uh, and it came to a head for the Posadists in, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Adolfo Gili, who was one of the um, intellectuals of the party, uh, was in Cuba during the Missile Crisis, and he noticed that in this moment when uh, you know, the whole world believed there might be nuclear war at any minute, Terrible. and certainly in Cuba, they believed that like Havana was just going to be wiped off the map one day uh, as the ships were coming in with yeah. uh, nuclear missiles from that, Russia. That was not an unfounded yeah, fear. Right? They, were, they had reason to believe that. Um, he, oh. he remarked that productivity was high. There was more revolutionary spirit than ever. And um, the Posada's position on Khrushchev turning around the ship and not arming Cuba was that this was a major defeat for the revolution. <sighs> And he was, uh, and so the Posadists, part of how they made their name in the early 60s was with this chauvinism for nuclear war through confrontation with the United States uh, and with the imperialist powers. And the criticism of the peaceful coexistence policy of the Soviet Union. Um, so part of how they, they articulated this was, was first of all, uh, they, they argued that people should uh, that siege the Guantanamo uh, naval base United States' Guantanamo base in Cuba, um, which absolutely would have led to a war. So the, the government s suppressed them for this and also just generally for being Trotskyists. Uh, and also they believe that Che Guevara was becoming a Trotskyist because oh. he had a different mm -hmm. position than the Communist Party in Cuba that was under the direction of the Soviet Union. So uh, when Guevara abruptly resigns his post and uh, goes on this sort of mysterious tour of the world that now we knew about, but at the time... He had just disappeared, and no one really knew where he was. Posadas published that Castro, under the influence of the Soviet Union, had had him killed. Oof. And this caused a huge scandal that led Castro to denounce Posadas at the Tricontinental Congress in 1965, but also denounce Trotskyism in general. And this was at a time when Trotskyists, uh, some of them didn't like Castro, but a lot of them adored Castro, oh. as they do today. Mm -hmm. And so Posadas was seen as spoiling uh, Trotskyist, the potential wow. of, tr of uh, wow. Cuba taking a Trotskyist direction. So, so they were too militant for Castro. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they were, uh, they were arguing for something that I think pretty clearly would have led to an open confrontation with the United States. So yeah, the two things pop up there. The first is that um, we view Posadas as this sort of marginal figure within history that has, you know, there's memes about dolphins and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, we've seen some texts of his but it goes to show that in the early 60s he is a real political player you know in the in the western world in the trotskyist movement dealing with folks like castro but it also shows i think something too of this i don't know not like ultra left nuclear accelerationism uh that that was sort of brewing in, in, at this time uh i'm not sure did people know about nuclear winter back then was this uh a they thing? did uh starting in the early 60s nuclear winter was well known but people who believed that nuclear war would be good on both sides thought that it was propaganda from either the CIA or the KGB. So um, 
I just have a few more questions based on the text, if I may, which is, by the way, I feel like we haven't said the name of it yet. Uh, it's a 1968 essay by Jay Posadis called uh, Flying Saucers, the Transfer of Energy and the Socialist Future of Mankind. So there's a few there are a few more things that I just want to sort of highlight that kind of raised an eyebrow when I came across them. Um, and there's this one quote where he says, we must suppress the force currently in the hands of the capitalist system, colon, nuclear weapons, destroy all nuclear weapons. Seems and that, a little uh, contradictory. that confused me a little because I know that uh, Posadists are known for sort of welcoming the idea of nuclear war as a way to kind of wipe the slate clean and somehow establish full communism on Earth. He didn't say how to destroy them. <laughs> Oh, come on. Come on. No, it's only contradictory. It's only contradictory if you seek to uh, portray Posadists as wacky, if you, if you, if you, if you seek uh, to slander Posadism. If you basically envision them as sort of um, futurist anarcho-primitivists. Well, the primitivist uh, uh, transhumanist synthesis is another one of our positions, but oh, we can't sorry. get to that just yet. All right, go uh, on. Uh, on the question of nuclear weapons, now... Uh, Posadists was not unusual, uh, nor were the Posadists, in understanding nuclear war as, frankly, inevitable. Uh, when uh, what looked like nuclear accelerationism was simply a, well, it's, it's going to happen, the official, mm. official policy of both superpowers is mutually assured destruction. Mm might as well do it on the terms of the workers' states. So it's like now, right, where we're all accelerationists, kind of, because we don't really have a choice, where we're not, like, actively wishing these things to happen. We're more, like, riding the wave. Yes, and, and in fact, in fact, Posadas, uh, he wasn't, uh, he was, certainly wasn't uh, the only one uh, who wrote about this, but, but I, I think he was the best on this, which is using the inevitability of nuclear war uh, in order to actualize that thing that Marx and Engels uh, say is inevitable, which is the rise of socialism, to hitch one inevitability to the other, to uh, make uh, to make lemonade out of, uh, I guess, lemon-scented turds. Uh, that's that's really what it is. It, 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 we call it uh, the socialism of the inevitable. What will arise in post-apocalyptic conditions? We further extend this to. Uh, the uh, Thermageddon, the capitalist scene, environmental collapse. Mm. Mm. That uh, nuclear war is still looming, mind you. Uh, Russia and the United States have their nukes aimed squarely at each other. Uh, but uh, the thing that we know is coming, and we know more or less when it is coming, and it's coming sooner than we think, is the ecological collapse. Mm. And if uh, our plans are to be long-term, and they have to be long-term, because we're nowhere as a movement right now, uh, we have to plan long-term, and if we plan long-term, we have to plan for pre-apocalyptic conditions, apocalyptic conditions, and post-apocalyptic conditions uh, when we plan our Short, evolution. medium, long-term. So really, exactly. it's, I mean, I, I assume that the damage wrought on the world by an actual nuclear war would probably be worse than the damage wrought by climate change, but I guess it's a similar concept in theory. Yes. And, and mind you, uh, we must understand that every successful, uh, just about every successful large scale, certainly socialist revolution has been conducted under apocalyptic conditions. China uh, after World War II, Russia after World War I. Uh, this is uh, and in fact, the, the socialisms that developed uh, under these conditions uh, well, they've been described by some comrades as having an inhuman face, uh, at least, at least uh, by uh, by you know by implication that these were inhuman. And 
you know, they, that's probably what we're going to get after the nuclear war. Uh, that's, that this is why, even though Posadas did not write about this much, we see contact with the space comrades and uh, preempting the socialism of the inevitable, the only socialism we're going to get according to the way that history is going, with the communism of the impossible, which is to say contact with the space comrades, communism brought forth from the stars, a kind of reverse neutron bomb that takes out all of the structures uh, that are toxic in our society and leaves all the people to, leave in, to live in harmony. Uh, that's where it all comes together. So I, I think um, the central tension of this, this question about uh, nuclear war and, and also uh, contact with, with aliens as well is this idea that um, something has to happen, this catastrophe or a deus ex machina, for us to be able to finally have a revolution. And, and you can find this in Trotsky before World War II. He, he wrote very vividly about um, how bad World War II was going to be. He predicted the, uh, the Shoah. Um, he understood that, the, that Stalin and Hitler were going to team up and divide up Europe, destroy the labor movements, and then go to war with one another. But having been through World War I, he believed that as bad as it was going to be, it meant an international revolution out of World War II was inevitable. So when that didn't happen, his followers believed that it was still on the horizon, that World War II would resume or World War III would happen any day, and it would uh, be sparked by capitalism coming into crisis. And before it allowed uh, socialism to spread, it would launch uh, a third world war. So this is, you know, Passas is like kind of made fun of for having this position, but it comes from positions of Trotskyism directly after World War II. My argument with this uh, from a Marx standpoint is that Marx was very clear in his early writings that history does nothing that the self-activity of the class, the organization of the proletariat, that creates socialism. Capitalism is prone to crisis, but the major crisis of capitalism is the proletariat organizing and overthrowing it on its own volition. So this actually brings up a very interesting, I think, historical analogy. If socialism, communism, is not something that is self-organized by the working class, if you need some sort of external force, like, say, a vanguard party in order to bring, you know, the gospel and the organizations down to the masses, uh, as has happened in history, is it fair to say that the space comrades, then, are, in a sense, uh, a external vanguard? Of the proletariat? You could say they're a vanguard that stands out of, outside of history. And in fact, an and, external... And, and Earth, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's, that's, that's it exactly. And in fact, an external vanguard is the only vanguard that'll ever work. Uh, this is, as a matter of fact, the vanguard presents itself functionally as an external force. And everything that every leftist is waiting for, by the way, it's not just Posadists who are waiting for something. It's not just Trotskyists. We've been uh, talking and writing about this for years. We're all waiting for something to happen, whether it's uh, the next election or a burn dumpster uh, financial he, crisis exactly exactly and and Andy is totally on point it's the self-action of the proletariat in the midst of the crisis that can produce the socialism of the inevitable and only that uh, but the crisis or at the very least a degree of instability in the pre-existing system is necessary for any revolution um, but what we need to actually produce uh, something that we have not yet been able to produce. We need to buck the trend of history. We need something outside of history, something that is not of history, something that can overcome, uh, to paraphrase Marx, uh, the nightmare weight of past generations. So, yeah, on that, Marx had a famous quote, and he said, uh, nothing human is alien to me. 
Uh, would it be fair to say then that in a uh, kind of neo-Marxian uh, Posadist take uh, that nothing alien is human to us? Marx, functionally, Posadism is simply the logical extension of Marxism. Uh, uh, Comrade High Commander covers this in his groundbreaking work, uh, Marxism as Futurology. Uh, which uh, we're, we're going to uh, make available soon. It's a very short essay, but there's a lot in it. We have a talk. copy of it right here, folks, oh, right oh, yes. hot off the presses. Oh, yes. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is, uh, it's, it's as, as we talked right now, the, the catastrophism, the specific mode of left catastrophism, Marxism is functionally uh, a branch of futurology, and it is a catastrophist futurology. Uh, while the catastrophe is not the actor, it is kind of the revolutionary moment itself, uh, that the proletariat grabs, that is of interest in Marxist futurology and Marxian futurology in general, the thing we look for. Where do we find the handhold of power? Uh, it, is, it is the catastrophe. It is the moment where the dominant system is weak enough for us to strike. It's the Russian Revolution. It's the Chinese Revolution. It is the Cuban Revolution. Even though there was no apparent catastrophe, there was at least a monumentally tottering dictatorship. Now, we've used two different terms, and I think we've used them interchangeably. The one is catastrophe, and the other is apocalypse. Now, not to get overly pedantic here, but apocalypse uh, means from the Greek an unveiling, right, of the truth that's uh, behind the scenes. So it seems like um, one of the things that we have to grasp is if there are all these theories and, and all this kind of circumstantial evidence about these space comrades out there, uh, potentially this vanguard uh, outside of history and off of the planet. Um, why is it that we have not contacted them? Is there some sort of conspiracy who is involved? I mean, I, I'm trying to get my head around this. Well, we don't deal in conspiracies. Uh, we, we, we think that the, the entire conspiracynoid mindset, seeing history as a series of conspiracies, is deeply un-Marxian. Uh, uh, we, we, we deal in facts. Uh, and uh, no, we, we don't think... It's, it's, it's actually hard to say. For one thing, we don't know if we think that we're... Uh, uh, that they think if we're ready for contact. We don't know if they've yet figured out how to properly communicate with us. As mighty as they are, as advanced as they are, the entire question of attempting direct communication with beings that are so evolutionarily divergent. I mean, we haven't even been able to talk to dolphins or squids properly yet, you know, and we've been at it for a little while, and, you know, our techniques aren't so terrible. So that's one possibility. There certainly have been attempts by the states, uh, both workers' states, deformed workers' states, and bourgeois states, to keep the working class from knowing about the space comrades. Uh, there have been programs to attempt to study them. Uh, according to uh, the great Soviet test pilot, uh, Marina Popovich, I believe uh, she says that the Soviet Union uh, investigated and uh, recovered no less than seven wrecks left by uh, space comrade scout craft between the rise of the Soviet Union and its collapse. And we know about the Roswell incident. We know about a number of incidents. We know about Blue Book. And we know that uh, the question of disclosure, the question of disclosure is very important. If we know what the state knows about the space comrades, that might aid proletarian efforts at contact and investigation. And during the last election, this was the deciding issue. Many people don't know that. Um, I certainly don't know. Tell us. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Hillary Clinton made a very unusual campaign promise that 
was reported on kind of jokingly, as this stuff usually is. You know, you all know Chomsky's propaganda model. That's sure, what it is. Of course, yeah. You you report on things, but then you report them as wacky, or you know, this is this is this is this is the propaganda model. And she promised disclosure. She promised uh, UFO disclosure. And then Obama said, you know, I've got the audio here, actually. Oh, let's listen to the That's audio. Right. When we had your husband, President Clinton, on this show, he said, I asked, I asked him, him about UFOs in Area 51, and, and if, he, if he looked in, because if I was president, if that's the first thing I do, I go right into those files and right. see what was going on. Right. And he said that he did do that. Yes. And that he didn't find anything. Well, I'm oh. going <laughs> to do it again. Yeah, why not? Right? And, and you know, there's a new name. It's unexplained aerial phenomenon so that, that's hillary on jimmy kimmel march yeah. 24th 2016 and my theory on this is that john podesta was trying to get her to win over Infowars uh <laughs> people with this nonsense so they wouldn't good luck with that so they wouldn't like investigate most... pizzagate or actually no no no. I have, I have a slight modification to that theory uh that's what john podesta told her john podesta is actually really into this stuff himself he is big in the ufology scene mm, i wonder why Not just i wonder an idiot. what he could so possibly he thought... be trying to distract people from looking into further i don't think he's trying to distract people i think he has a genuine interest i think he's scum but uh, a lot of, you know, not, not everyone who has the right idea about the flying saucers and that they should be investigated is necessarily going to be right about everything else. That's all mm. I'm saying. That, that, that kind of dovetails with another thing that I wanted to ask you about from the text where he says uh, capitalism has no interest in UFOs and as such makes no research into them. It has no interest in occupying itself with these matters because they cannot reap profits, nor are they useful to capitalism. And I think that might be contradicted by the revelation that our government actually has put money into this, um, maybe as a disinformation campaign. Who knows? Uh, I, I feel like you guys both have thoughts on this. But before you guys weigh in on it, I mean, I think that given this conversation and what I can gather from it, um, perhaps there needs to be a proletarian exploration. Perhaps we can't rely on the capitalist mm -hmm. class and its states. We need, as proles, to self-organize a sort of uh, expedition and analysis, some research on this. Well, this is what I talk about in my uh, essay for the outline um, about Marxist ufology. Uh, this, so this thing that came out in uh, December from in the New York Times about um, the, the Pentagon spending millions of dollars on UFO research, uh, it all went to this guy named Robert Bigelow and Bigelow Aeronautics. He's one of... The T guy, right? He's a, the what? Oh, no. He, he, along with um, Bezos and Musk, he's one of these people who's really trying to break into the space industry, mine asteroids, make space hotels. Oh, the T. Yeah, no. no he's, uh, <laughs> it's like, it was so bad it took you a while to get it. <laughs> yeah. I still don't get it. <laughs> it does, it's not, it's not funny. Tea. I'm sorry. Go on. Uh, right. So I'm going to spill some tea on Bigelow yeah, right now. Good. I'm going to spill some tea on Bigelow right now and uh, his boy from Blink-182, Tom DeLonge. Uh, so Tom DeLonge has something called To the Stars Academy, which, like Bigelow Aeronautics, is trying to, this is what they say themselves, reverse engineer a UFO and UFO technology. So they, they get, they're getting this money from the Pentagon. Um, they claim they have material from crashed UFOs, possibly from Roswell. Um, so basically Roswell, you know, at least it was part of the, the government, at least the research was for the, the interests of the United States. Now it's in the hands of a private corporation, mm. um, and they're trying to 
make uh, like patents the technology that they find. Not only that, but Tom DeLong uh, to the Stars Academy is trying to make uh, his own version of MUFON. MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network, where people cooperatively investigate UFOs. This was a, a group started uh, largely by Hynek and Valet, two of the great ufologists. Um, and to, Tom DeLong wants people to start doing this in the interest of his private corporation. <laughs> Shit. Mm. So it's not even capital, it's not even the bourgeois state anymore. You know, we see this with Musk as well. The capitalist class seems like it's organizing itself in order to make uh, inroads into space. Well, I mean, uh, to begin with, with Posadas, this is something that uh, we disagree with Posadas on. He was just wrong. He turned out to be wrong. Uh, he turned out to be right about a lot of things, but he didn't have the information that we have now, and he was wrong about uh, bourgeois states. He wasn't perfect. In UFOs. He wasn't no. perfect. No, no, we don't say that he was. Uh, but uh, as far as this stuff goes, the, the interesting thing is look at what they're focusing on. They're focusing on uh, their aircraft. Uh, this is nonsense. The really, this is, this is missing... The, the, the true treasure for, for, for the treasure chest, uh, what they have and that we don't have and that I don't think uh, we, we've been able to develop so far, we've been trying for years, is communism. Oh. Uh, it is a, an egalitarian social system uh, where they don't need war, they don't need violence, uh, they are decent, rational, emotional beings. Uh, they've managed to get to space and to other stars before drowning their planets in, 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 in the uh, effluence uh, left behind by their industry. They've managed to get their stuff together. How did they do that? What is, what is their secret? What, what kind of social order do they have and how can we emulate it? That's really what we should be trying to reverse engineer. And I don't think we can do that without direct friendly contact. That's fascinating because, you know, even back as far as the Communist Manifesto, you know, Marx is talking about, uh, you know, this kind of grubbiness of like the material world under capitalism. And one of the things, of course, that separates Marx from the bourgeois economists is that he wasn't interested in just material things like spacecrafts and supply and demand. He was interested in social relations, right? So, of course, when the capitalists go to space, it's about profit making things. But what your or high commander is uh, basically uh, pointing to is that we need to be looking to space in order to change the relations of production and ultimately the mode of production in order to free all of humanity from the bounds, not just of capitalism, but from this terrestrial sphere. Yes, and for that we need to begin with dolphin communication and move on to the space comrades. I mean, do you think there's something to be said for uh, sort of a competing view of like uh, capitalist space exploration? Because to me, I mean, these people probably don't believe in the existence of the space comrades, but it seems like to me, space is just another commons that everybody's racing to uh, capitalize on and enclose before our competing powers can do that. And, like, and militarize as well. And yeah, in, a, the, in the, you know, the traditional way where we use our military power in order to advance uh, the business sector's economic interests. Basically like, like primitive accumulation in space. Yeah, like do you think there's something to be said for that? Oh, oh yeah, I think, I think you said it so well that I, I can't say it better. All right, that's high praise coming from uh, Comrade Communicator. So uh, I just want to go back to the nuclear war thing for a second and uh, push back on some of what you said, because I think a lot of people rightly find it 
pretty alarming the degree to which Posadists are uh, sort of okay with the idea of impending nuclear catastrophe. Uh, maybe they don't think there's anything we can do about it. Maybe they don't think there's anything we should do about it. But um, just the idea that uh, we could have any kind of human society following a global nuclear war, like, I just, it, it, it's going to be a hard sell for a lot of people. Like, aren't we going to have like nuclear winter and like I, I guess if there's no more humans there's no more capitalism but that's not really what any of us want is it revolution is no rose garden comrade um it was it, it, it's going to be very hard and the socialism that is built in the aftermath is going to be hellish but so was the socialism built in the aftermath of uh, of the collapse of the russian state it'll be even hellish probably but uh, i think there's something intensely optimistic whether or not uh we can uh, build a society after the nuclear war. If the nuclear war is inevitable, I think it's better to think that we can and to attempt to do it. So you do think that he, there will still be some like segment of humanity, some number of humans that are still alive and not like completely burdened by like horrible deformities and terminal cancer and whatnot. Oh, it'll be a deformed worker state. <laughs> well, but 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 I have to I have to say I have to say this is this is again uh, Pascal's wager. Think about it. Think about it. <laughs> let's say let's say there's no one left and we're wrong. Capitalism's so, over. And no 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 no. So so what if we're wrong? So what if we were right? But if we're right and there's someone left, that someone might have the tools of of building of building socialism in one irradiated hellscape. You know, the other thing is that in Silicon Valley right now, there is this huge kind of transhumanist futurism that's going on. And it's this conception that we're going to use nanotechnology and computers, perhaps bionic limbs, uh, in order to create a better human, a human that not only can, uh, you know, perform better tasks, think better, but potentially even live forever. Now, within this deformed worker state, um, you know, radiation can cause all sorts of different, I don't know, mutations. Um, is it is it possible that we could square that circle like if we're in an irradiated hellscape and people have three arms you know isn't that actually doesn't that decrease like the socially necessary labor time if people have three eyes i mean and you could see behind you 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 see where i'm getting at right like yep. Comrade, but isn't no it a double-edged sword, though? Because then we'll need to have extra sleeves on our shirts oh, shit, and extra right. lenses in our glasses and, you know, extra little pouches in our underwear. Like, but, isn't that going to cancel out well, wait, any wait. improvement in wait, productivity wait, that we you, might get? And you said underwear. This is actually an interesting thing, too, because if we're talking about, as Comrade uh, Communicator said before, talking about the gender binary and new sexual organs, perhaps these mutations will actually cause everybody to be some sort of intersex so oh. that there's no longer this kind of imposed social construct of the gender binary when we each have like three penises and four vaginas. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it might not like abolish the gender binary by abolishing gender, but maybe just by making like way more oh, genders all than the we genders. could possibly count. Hell yeah. Like I've got seven dicks, you've got two vaginas, uh, I'm a blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I think I think you have too much uh, confidence in the biological basis of social gender. Oh, they could, you know, they they they, they could just they could just, you know, we, we could all have like different numbers of dicks, vaginas, the body that the lion scared, basically. Uh, co comrade communicator, please watch your language. You said the D word. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. Just okay, moving pee forward. No cursing. and hoo-hahs. Thank you. Thank you. We could have all kinds of pee-pees and hoo-hahs. 
and uh, we and there would still be a large segment of people who would say there are only two genders yeah, because that's what they learned in school. Yeah, like sex is the biological reality and gender is the social construct, right? So like even if everybody is like some combination of future intersex, there could still be two uh, primary expressions of gender. On the other hand, the, stru the structure, the underlying structure does sometimes affect the culture. So maybe we'll see. But, but, but I, did, I did not mean to be reductionist. I apologize. I'm just trying to put a silver lining on the inevitable yeah, yeah. nuclear try, apocalypse. Try and get a handle on your gender essentialism, all right, babe? Uh, my, yeah, yeah just because we all have now. seven dicks. <laughs> But anyway, comrades, peepees, comrades. peepees. Oh, uh, Richards. Uh, I meant I meant my friend Richard uh, Wagner. Well, not really a friend of mine, but I like his music. My friend Richard Nixon. Not my friend either. Richard I'm Wolf. digging myself. Di <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Richard Tricky Wolf. Dick. Good old, good old. Yes, Moby Richard. No, 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 no. You can't, you can't say the D word. Um, a bag of Marxist theorists. There we go. <laughs> but but ups for all. I just, I just, I just want to say we're, we're we're not like the. I, I hate. The, the Posadas is going to have to bring this down to earth. We're not all going to have uh, extra limbs. We're all going to be riddled with cancer. Yeah, so note. like, how's that going to work? <laughs> it's going to be horrible. That's why we need the space comrades to preempt it. Mm. I don't see how we're going to do it otherwise. Is it, is it Anvar Hoksha? Is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So... Famously, um, Anvar Hoxha. It's pronounced Anvar Hoxha. Oh, shit. Thank you, sir. Uh, we got a real Albanian speaker here. Um, in the small, um, deformed worker state known as Albania, uh, was really into prepping. And uh, part of his kind of, you know, revolutionary or state program was uh, for there to be a pillbox, you know, in every backyard. When the war came with the capitalist powers, every proletarian or every proletarian family or community would be prepared uh, to fight off the capitalist invaders. Is there a sense in which maybe this Hoja conception could be married with a, a kind of a futurist, basadist uh, program? Right. Well, uh, first... Uh, Transitional program, uh, at least. Uh, first, uh, one word on, on the famous one bunker per goat program uh, in, uh, in Albania. Th this is the interesting thing. Do you know who, which invasion he was preparing for? Yugoslavia. Yes, and Greece. Yugoslavia. Now, this is, this is the kicker. Uh, if you know anything about Yugoslavia during that period and Albania during that period, if Tito was mad enough to want Albania and to invade it, the best thing Albania could have done was to immediately surrender and the standard of living would have improved. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's it. bad for Hoxha, but good for Albania. I, I actually I actually think that, that uh, Hoxha understood this. But also, look, to be real, the Greek military dictatorship, he was also uh, girding himself against that. But the Yugoslav angle has always made me laugh a little because, come on, who doesn't want to be invaded by Yugoslavia? Yugoslavia baby. was cool. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was deformed. Uh, it was degenerated, but, you know, good times. Tito also had mad bunkers. It just wasn't as spectacular as uh, Hoja's. And, and, there were propaganda bunkers. There were, I'd go in were. every bunker. A bunker per goat. Tito bunker built these goat. huge, like, um, socialist, you know, apartment blocks and all of them had a huge bunker under them yeah but but they, they he actually built apartment blocks all hoja did was build bunkers albania like he basically that was that was the construction industry albania is kind of it, it, it he should have built apartment blocks and maybe thought about the bunkers this is another thing i guess comrade communicator and i have in common we're both balkan nerds for some reason <laughs> i love the music i love the food i love the people
So again, going back to the uh, Posadas article from uh, 1968, I quote, we, but we believe that they, meaning the space comrades, could exist. It is possible that beings will come to study Earth, what life is like here. Beings who departed their homes for Earth a million years ago. For us, that corresponds to a million years, but for them, it's an insignificant figure, a normal amount. They may well not be subjected to our notion of time. Time has always been and remains a notion picked up by a society divided into classes. Such a society needed to measure time in order to, to exploit nature, hence the division of time. Now, that is a very, very, very prescient analysis, I think, by Posadas. And really, in a lot of ways, I'm not sure what literature he was reading, but he's sort of anticipating... He wasn't reading anything. <laughs> he okay. was just a weird guy. <laughs> right. He was definitely reading the Russian cosmos. I have to differ with that. Uh, okay. Clear influence. But he was... But uh, he, he actually... Um, kind of anticipated uh, the vert critique school, the, the value form theory school. Uh, maybe one of its most f famous uh, proponents was Moisha Postone, who talks about temporality and time under capitalist auspices. And what's really fascinating to me, uh, connecting the space comrades conception, is that ultimately, as Postone and others would argue, uh, the conception of abstract, linear, quantifiable time is something that is unique to capitalist social relations and itself a form of domination. So do you believe, comrade communicator, that Posadis was ahead of his time in trying to imagine not just the abolition of socially necessary labor time as this abstract value, but also of time itself? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, there, there are stories that have been going around for quite some time. I think the earliest exact source I've been able to pinpoint is uh, uh, Walter Benjamin, mm, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, during the Paris Commune, the workers shot at the clocks. Yes. Uh, very famous story. And that's, that is, I would say, was he ahead of his time? No, but he was on the right track uh, because these ideas have already been going around. They've been going around probably since they put the first clock in a factory. Uh, uh, the workers who saw it recognized it as their enemy. But we, we must also look, this is the figurative uh, question of, of space travel and time. H how, how did the space comrades come to have such a relationship uh, with time? Let's say they had linear time at some point. Uh, space travel itself, travel uh, between the stars, travel at near light speeds uh, will disabuse you uh, from the idea of universal oh. time. Uh, you, and if you travel faster than light, imagine this for a moment. You travel faster than light and you take a very powerful telescope that uh, can see what's happening at a distant star. Uh, and by the time you arrive at your destination, you, will, you could look into the past of your planet uh, from where you are. Um, simply because the light isn't getting there. Uh, and you felt like you, you just, you know, it was, this is, you know, you've, you've been on the ship for a year. And then you come back and you're in the distant future. So part of, uh, I'm just guessing here, but as part of High Commander's uh, program and research into astral projection, mm -hmm. uh, basically what Mark said in the Grundrisse, which is uh, the annihilation of space through time? Well... In this case, uh, it's the annihilation of space and time through the power of thought. There is a uh, Soviet saying uh, that I uh, see some people of uh, my uh, uh, parents' generation sometimes pull out, and this, is, this must come from cosmism. I hear Comrade High Commander say this, and that is, 
the speed of thought is faster than the speed of time. Uh, or rather, the speed of uh, thought is faster than the speed of light. While this may not be literally true in a way that we understand it, uh, the uh, sparks in uh, the brain, uh, the, uh, the, the, the synapse is certainly, certainly much slower, much slower uh, than the speed of light. However, we can, uh, with sufficient training, project ourselves uh, without, uh, without uh, uh, any question of, of the laws of space and time. So it's not this sort of uh, separation between idealism and materialism. It's using materialism to create ideation. No, comrade, it is even more than that. It is a materialism that is sufficiently advanced as to be indistinguishable from idealism. Fuck yeah. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> now that's what I call a synthesis. So, uh, if I may broaden this discussion out a bit to um, the popular culture, the products of uh, capitalist media, um, the representation of aliens in popular culture, um, as Andy mentioned in his great outline piece, uh, is typically that of like a terrifying bug, terrifying bug creatures who want to exterminate the human race for no apparent material reason. You know, uh, I think Will Smith says like, welcome to earth, bitch, before he punches an alien in the face. Or, or maybe he doesn't say bitch because Will Smith doesn't swear. You know, he probably says like, welcome to earth, yo, or something. Uh, <laughs> Like DJ Jesse Jeff swears a lot. Though. Yeah, yeah. The the representation of aliens in um, popular culture um, seems like to me, and maybe you know, feel free to shoot this down, so to speak. But it seems like uh, do you, do you think it's a bit of projection, maybe, on the part of a jingoistic uh, American culture that we think that they are terrifying bug creatures who want to kill us because that's what we want to do to aliens, whether they're like, you know, undocumented humans or actual aliens in the sky. Or nature itself. You know, you know you, you, you're, you're correct, but I think you're being slightly too charitable. What, who else, who else is, uh, is portrayed in this way? Well, for example, communists. Uh, and that, as we know, was a, a, a program, a program during the Cold War to get the media on board to present a certain kind of view of the enemy for fear that the American worker would see them as allies. Mm. Now, notice uh, when you had, a, you know, you had this pop up earlier because it's, it's natural to imagine outside scary. It's xenophobia, it's neophobia, but you had a real glut of these films after the Roswell incident, oh. uh, after the U.S. government learned something about the space comrades. You saw all of these movies nonstop uh, with a few exceptions, as I said earlier, the propaganda model. But the, uh, the high pitch was enemy alien propaganda, as we call it. Uh, and we see a radical version of it, a kind of uh, a fascist reflection of the capitalist enemy alien propaganda later in the work of uh, David Icke. So uh, something that I mentioned in the outline piece is the work of Dante Minizzoli, who was uh, a major intellectual of the Posadas movement and the inspiration for Posadas' Flying Saucer essay. Um, in the 1980s, he became a ufologist full-time, and he interpreted uh, the, the fall of the Glasnost and the fall of the Soviet Union um, as finally making the, the conditions right for there to be first contact, because he believed that the aliens were here, they were watching us, they were waiting for the right moment. 
And he thought that the, as many uh, socialists and Trotskyists did at the time, that the fall of the Soviet Union would mean uh, this unleashing of, of socialist forces that would uh, spread like outside the Iron Curtain. Of course, that didn't happen. Instead of globalization of neoliberal health. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, he were, but he was concerned and he was sending letters uh, to, to all the ufologists he could saying, if you get some information about an alien invasion uh, right now, be careful that it's not CIA propaganda. Because the Reagan administration had met uh, with the Soviet Union and come to an agreement, this is true, that if there was an alien invasion, they would unite to fight it. Mm. Uh, this was in like the, the mid-80s, like during the Star Wars program. Hmm. And of course, the Marxist ufologists were very optimistic that aliens would uh, um, bring socialism to the planet. So he saw exactly what the neo-Pasadists are talking about that there's going to be enemy alien propaganda from the CIA through the ufologists, and mm -hmm. it's not unreasonable to think that there would be messages in uh, in science fiction as well. And that squares with the Trotskyist line of thinking, right? That both uh, American capitalism and Soviet communism under Stalin were both uh, sort of counter-revolutionary bastardizations of human society, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, and yet, and yet, they critically supported Stalin uh, with all of these horrors. Uh, and and it, it we we this is why we say uh, uh, instead of critically supporting uh, at this point not even deform worker states but various neoliberal dictatorships instead of pr offering them critical support, which functionally it used to mean support with criticism with intense criticism. Now it means support with how aboutism. Um, instead of critical support, we ask people to offer critical belief, critical belief in the space comrades. Mm -hmm. Much as uh, we offer uh, critical support to uh, uh, various forces that we believe uh, might be useful politically, you know, even though we really wouldn't otherwise support them. Even if you Bernie think- Bernie Sanders? Uh, yes, Bernie <laughs> Sanders, Bashar al-Assad, Adolf Hitler, probably if he was alive today, <laughs> um, because he's fighting American imperialism, um, right? But, and um, to, can I say that on the air? But anyway, but, <laughs> but fine, in, instead, instead, we suggest similarly, because we, the, you know, there is no other path to communism or socialism other than through total collapse that anyone has yet outlined. We need to have critical belief in the space comrades, at the very least, even if you think it's ridiculous, because it's politically expedient. Now, you had mentioned briefly David Icke. Is he part of the enemy alien propaganda? Is he a useful idiot? Or uh, is he spreading uh, disinformation just at whole cloth out of his own head? Oh, space age fascism waiting in the wings in case the space comrades do manage to contact the workers, in case the workers do manage to contact the space comrades. You will see Ikeism become the official ideology of every bourgeois state. Um, this is much as much as the bourgeoisie flocked to fascism uh, when the workers' movement seemed on the verge of victory. Uh, when they feared for their property, so too will they flock to Ikeist, Jonesist uh, ideas about the space comrades and ways of doing things as soon as the threat from the space comrades to the existing order becomes imminent. You know, I watched They Live recently, and it's a very Ikeist, Jonesist movie where, mm -hmm. uh, where you know, you put on sunglasses and you recognize that uh, there are these, you know, aliens or interdimensional beings controlling society 
but yet it has an incredible class analysis. And uh, the most interesting thing about the plot of the movie is that this working class guy who's very patriotic um, refuses, uh, he's a construction worker, he refuses to have beef with his boss. He, as soon as he puts on these glasses and recognizes that society is being controlled by a bourgeois class of, of uh, aliens, he s- grabs a gun and starts killing all of them. Mm-hmm. He goes into a bank and starts killing the tellers mm-hmm. at the bank. Like the guy did a Comet Pink Pong, right? <laughs> we we yeah. don't think that this is intended, because Carpenter, Carpenter uh, I, think, I think he has like halfway decent politics. I don't think he meant it that way, but it was actually a pretty strosserous film when you get down to it. Because what is it? What is it that finally gets the worker to rise up against the bosses who've been, you know, um, uh, you know can I say the S word? Sure, go ahead. They've been screwing him. Um, <laughs> they've been screwing him every which way, uh, and that's not enough. But you know what? It ain't humans that's screwing me. It's them space skeletons. And <laughs> right, he goes goes in there with the gun. And this is this is distressing. We this is an unintentionally stressorist film. It's interesting because Stormfront loves it, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's a that's Mm. a good tidbit. It's interesting because you know so much of uh, you know I think popular culture, especially nowadays and even back in the eighties, is sort of grasping at the truth. You know, the grasping of the exploitation and alienation and the destruction of the planet and human and human potentials that capitalism uh, and its states represent. I think that Carpenter in that film, like many others, almost gets to that point almost gets to the point where he's willing to accept that the space comrades might not be the enemy, that it's actually the capitalist class, but he just cannot get there. And I feel like ultimately if we're going to have a progressive movement that believes in the revolution of the impossible, we're going to have to get over that hump, create our own propaganda, create our own bunkers, right? Create our own forms of self-organization. Or take theirs. Or Yes, expropriate, exactly. Thank you. Musk, right? Musk, as much as we hate him as a capitalist scumbag, right? He is doing a lot of the heavy lifting right now. If we can merely expropriate SpaceX, right? There is a potential that we might be able to accelerate the joining of space comrades, uh, undersea dolphin civilization, and the proletarian struggle in order to overthrow the existing order. Oh, uh, that, that, that would be excellent. And while we do this, we must resist. We must resist the Posadism of fools. Yeah, I mean, I was, I guess you kind of touched on some of it. I was just going to ask, like, about the, the continuing relevance of not just Posadism, but uh, ufology in general in popular culture, um, why people are so fascinated by it. Uh, and like the idea that um, what did Mark Fisher say that it's easier to envision the end of the world than the end of capitalism like is this something that people are grasping at when they get obsessed with uh, UFOs and conspiracy theories Um, and and how do we make the jump from this uh, sort of red herring obsession with a certain branch of conspiracy theory and an actual historical materialist analysis of the real people who are controlling the world, which are not lizards, but capitalists. I see this, this and meme culture that I'm you know, sort of denouncing as all being tied in because we can see from the, the Tumblr aesthetics of the, you know, the, the 90s nostalgia green alien, the, the uh, interest in the X-Files, the X-Files coming back, half-joking question of uh, suicide and like apocalypse and 
Professor Zoidberg, like leaving Earth, you know, all of this is speaking to this idea that it's much more plausible to for the world to end than for it to change. I, I think that um, that's a reasonable reaction to the fact that there is no left. There is no opposition to the global order now. As we talked about last week, the capitalists have won. And this is actually something that I talked earlier about Trotsky's eschatology. He said World War II is going to lead to this global revolution. But if it doesn't, it just means like there's going to be a regime of decline and civilization is going to collapse. And that's kind of what's happening right now. Um, the fact that people are orienting more towards this, this catastrophism, uh, towards this like half-ironic ap- apocalypse fetishizing uh, interest in UFOs and nuclear war and the end of the world, it indicates where our headspace is at politically. And it's a big challenge to, to climb out of that. Oh, you mean eating Tide Pods is not an expression of millennial optimism? Well, we talked about pods earlier. We're podcasting right now. Tide Pods look like a UFO. It all comes first. I think in the movie Cocoon, the aliens were in pods. And what about the tides? What about the tides? Mm. The sea from which we all came from as aquatic apes. The (laughs) sea that house our sea comrades. And the sea that is a metaphor for the vastness of space. Well... Comrade communicator, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, It was really, really enlightening. And I think that our viewers are going to be very happy to uh, hear your voice uh, and this interview where you really did a great job of uh, kind of exploring uh, Posadism. And thank you, Andy, also for bringing a historical basis to this. And I hope when you guys leave this studio, you don't pull out switchblades and start fighting over the true meaning of what Posadism means. Maybe a Chris knife. Makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold. Greater than the might of atoms, greater than the might of atoms, and the might of atoms, 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 atoms. Magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. So before we end this transmission, uh, I would just like to give a little shout out to all of the anti-fascist organizers on the front lines on this, the one year anniversary of Charlottesville, Um, as we know. A comrade named Heather Heyer was killed one year ago this weekend um, fighting against the fascists and white supremacists in Charlottesville. Um, It's it's difficult to say, like, I don't want to overstate the threat that these people pose because, as we talked about last week, the real fascists are cops and they're already in power. Um, At the same time, this is something that we should take very seriously. So... um, I know a lot of my comrades, a lot of my DSA comrades are in Charlottesville and D.C. this weekend. Um, I hope they're all staying as safe as they possibly can. Um, we saw some real some real actions in Portland last weekend, some real violence, actually. This one guy would have been killed 
by the cops if it weren't for the helmet that he was wearing. Um, we had a memorial for uh, Heather Heyer last night at uh, Mayday Space through uh, the DSA. That was uh, it was really nice. We screened. We actually screened Brando's uh, Antifa documentary, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, yeah, I just at the risk of being too sincere, um, my heart goes out to everyone who's fighting fascism right now, um, not just in Charlottesville, but all over the world. It's okay to be sincere about this. Uh, rest in power, Heather Heyer, and uh, keep up the good fights, every, uh, everybody out there.